All of those celebrations of just over a year ago now feel like a lifetime away, don't they? Norwich City relegated back to the Championship barely 14 months since they were promoted in glory with Daniel Farker constantly wearing out his arms, waving to every corner of the Norwich City world. And it's starting to feel like a distant memory because all the talk now is that Norwich City are the most relegated team in Premier League history, a fifth relegation confirmed by a total slump to a 4-0 defeat to West Ham. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. We also come to you on Future Radio 107.8 FM. I am Dave Freezer and joined by Paddy Davitt and Connor Southwell to look back on it all coming to an end, but the season isn't over yet. We've still got three games to persevere, which I don't think anyone inside or outside of Carrow Road is particularly keen to do. Pad, how much are you looking forward to going to Stamford Bridge right now? Not a not huge amount, no, <laughs> no for, any, for any reason really, I was, I, was, I was trying to stop myself going down the sacred route of talking about press food, but uh, I've now led myself down that path, and Chelsea is by some measure the best in terms of, <laughs> in terms of press food, so, so that would have been a saving grace, uh, but um, people will think, what's he going on about, but post-lockdown, um, any food is no longer provided, quite rightly probably, in terms of the protocols that go on around these games so I don't even have the consolation of the cheese board at Chelsea um, <laughs> because I think we probably know the result it, it, if today is any guide given it's the latest link in the chain then there's not going to be a lot down for Norwich on the pitch uh, as there hasn't been and there definitely wasn't this afternoon against West Ham and that was uh, what a way to go out well we all knew it was inevitable but to be confirmed in that f- fashion and really very nice of Norwich to sort of showcase why they're going down that they can't defend and mm. they, they can't score goals certainly not since the turn of the year and and I'm afraid both of those are graphically illustrated against a West Ham team let's get it straight who came to Carrow desperately in need of a win for their own relegation worries so um, you know they haven't been swept aside by a Liverpool or a Manchester United uh, on this occasion it's um, a team who were down there with them so uh very poor, very poor, and and probably will leave a lot of Norwich fans more than disillusioned, probably a bit angry and embarrassed by by being associated with that performance. My day was made even more stressful with my car playing up on the short drive to our office from Carrow Road. Uh, I had golf clubs on the back seat, and my car decided it didn't like that and would screech at me the whole way up the uh, Rowan Road hill. So that's really added to my fun of the day. Uh, somebody asked the question in our live updates, Connor, how. Uh, angry the crowd would have been um, if fans had been able to be at Carrow Road at the moment if it hadn't have been behind closed doors how much of a difference do you think it would have made I know we've talked about this bits and pieces over these last few weeks do, do you think things would have got as bad as this if the fans had been there to just drive them on that bit more so it's a really difficult question to answer I, I think there have been certainly periods in games um, at Carrow Road where I thought if they could have just had a little bit of energy off the crowd now. Um, but beyond that, no, I, I don't think it probably would have made too much difference in, in truth because let's not kid ourselves, it's not today that they've been relegated. Well, it is today they've been officially relegated, but I think it's probably been inevitability for a while and that's because of a lack of quality pre- and post-lockdown, um, but particularly post. And 
I mean, some of, some of the statistics were seven straight defeats, five goals this year, 17 games without scoring. Those are the statistics that, that get you relegated, I think, whether supporters are in the ground or, or if not. And I think it would have been very flat. It probably would have been angry at the end, and, and rightly so, because I think, and I've, I've said this a lot on, on here, that there's a, there's a way to get relegated and, and there's a way to sort of go down. And today certainly wasn't that way and, and probably since Southampton at home hasn't hasn't been that way either. It's been um, pretty poor in terms of performance and has probably actually left Norwich fans, whereas uh, perhaps before lockdown, I think a, a few of them were, were probably going down with their heads held high. They'd, they'd had that wonderful night at Tottenham, um, that brilliant win against Manchester City, uh, the win against Leicester. Things felt a lot more positive and, and suddenly it, it kind of looks like they're questioning um, people within the club and, and, and probably rightly so you have to say since the restart there's been a lot of mistakes made this season some which have um, made public by the club I, I guess in terms of Stuart Webber admitting the mistakes in terms of recruitment I think we can get we'll probably get into the set pieces issue I think that's again an ongoing one as well and it, it just feels a bit flat um, and it's, it's difficult I think whereas in a few weeks and a, and a few months ago there, there was a lot of hope to be drawn out of it it kind of feels like that's faded a little bit and whether that would have resulted in had Carrero been full today uh, an angry mob I'm not sure I think it, it probably would have been just quite flat and, and probably quite accepting but I, I think for Norwich fans that doesn't make it hurt any less I think the fact that this has been months in, in the works doesn't doesn't make it hurt any less I think it's um, it's disappointing I think it reopens probably too many Wounds probably that that have, that have been felt before, and um, it's it's all going to be about the rebuild now. And, and I mean, Stuart Webber spoke about the the philosophy, the structure, the culture getting tested. I think when when they got promoted, for me, this is the ultimate test now because I think the direction they go in will probably define the club, and and certainly under Stuart Webber and Daniel Farker, probably um, until until they leave, essentially. So it's 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 a really big year. It's going to be probably a, a really interesting summer I think and, and yeah it's it's going to be a, a period of reflection but yeah three games that, that nobody wanted and three games that nobody would have wanted if fans were in the stadium let alone when they're not Yeah, Twitter certainly felt, felt like an angry mob but then it quite often <laughs> when does <it? laughs> yeah. when doesn't it um, our live updates at pinkin.com as well at these times when it gets dark like this people really do get angry and um, of course in a relegation, as probably should be the case, Pad um, Daniel Farker's position does get questioned. He was asked that question directly after the game, wasn't he? Um, I think most Norwich fans and, and people involved with the club are aware that they've sort of set out their stall already on it. I, mean, I don't think any of us really are expecting Daniel to go. I don't think any of us expected it to get this bad, though. I don't, you know, it must must feel to him like there's a there's a real lot of pressure on him at the moment, and it's a real. It's a tough ask for him, you know. Even even his media duties, uh, he's having to repeat himself quite a lot, isn't he? And it's it's tough. But his answer, anyway, he he was pretty dismissive, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. I don't think he appreciated the question being asked. But I mean, he, he stated he's on a long term contract, and it's not even a, de- a debate in his mind. Um, it's probably a debate in a f- increasingly minority at this stage. But but and I said it yesterday on on our Facebook uh, record post Colney. Um, that basically, I don't see, I don't see an argument for saying he's not the man to start next season and and, and try and, and repeat what he did. But by the same token, Stuart Webber isn't a, a man. I don't think who would uh, who would allow things to to uh, deteriorate uh, too far down the, this path. And if it was hypothetically, you get to October, November, Norwich are 
14th and not really showing signs that they're going to be able to come back straight away, I'm pretty sure Daniel Farker won't be in charge. So he's he's very um, he's very well aware of his own position and that it is about results and and whether he carries himself in the way he does. This connection he clearly has got with the fan base. You, you spoke at the outset there that that orchestration with the fans last season, um, you know, lovely to see. And even this season, in, in parts, Tottenham away probably the last one that you know that, that feeling that. This is a guy who fans can can buy into and in what he's trying to do. And as he said himself, he had opportunities to go last summer um, when his stock was very high and then chose to, um, out of loyalty, he felt on one level and, and also that he believes in what they're trying to achieve here. So for those reasons, the ties are very strong, I feel. I, I don't think it's, it's a, a guy who's looking to use Norwich as a vehicle to move on to, in his mind, bigger and better. I, I think he would like, and as he's always said, he's never walked out on any contract he's had as a coach, so he would expect, quite rightly, that he's here until 21, is it? 22? I lose track. 22. 22. Yeah. That's very well, all well and good from his side of the fence, but as I say, the expectation, and he's referenced this himself in recent days, is now on that club to be in the top six and challenging for promotion to come straight back. If they're not looking like that, I don't think Stuart Webber uh, is a man who will, uh, as, as fond as he is of Daniel, he was his man from the outset. He was the one he wanted to bring in, and between them, they've they have, although at the minute it feels very raw, but they have engineered an amazing turnaround on and off the park of that football club. So I don't think he, I don't think he would relish wanting to be the man who, who moves Daniel on. But ultimately, he's also uh, his his loyalty has to be to the owners and to the fan base and. And that is the reality of it. If Norwich aren't looking like they can turn this around pretty swiftly into the new season, then I don't think we'll need to debate for too long that Daniel Farker is the right man to continue because he he will not be in charge. It's as simple as that. That's how football works, isn't it? And um, past glories count for very little to for, for, for the most part in football. Um, just to to allow your mind to wander a little bit, how epic would it be? If we get back to fans being back in the stadium and, and Daniel can bring it back round and bring those Farker waves back and they manage to turn the wheel and come back and roar back, it, you know, it might, I write in my column this week that it could actually be a good year to go back to the Championship. If Leeds and West Brom both get promoted, you haven't really got any big clubs coming back up from League One. I meant, I meant to take you to task about that column, but we'll, we won't do that here. Well, you, what was it? Because Portsmouth and Sheffield and Ipswich, you even, you even threw in uh, Sunderland. Sorry, Portsmouth, Sunderland, and Ipswich. Yeah, staying down as if they're somehow bigger than Cov. I mean, what, well, you, what planet are you on, Dave? Coventry are traditionally a big club, but are there, is it really the same club now? Like, I mean, That's after right. all their financial issues and not having a home and stuff, I don't. In my head, it almost feels like it's a t- mark two. Yeah, no, agreed. Yeah, and and I wouldn't as biased as I am. I wouldn't expect them to be challenging. So it is a fair point that, that it doesn't, on the face of it, look like a league that would daunt Norwich. You know, we, we Connor and I were just having a chat before we started recording, and yeah, if if Leeds, West Brom go out, even Brentford because they look very progressive at the minute, is there anything left that you would fear if you're Norwich? No, not for me, and particularly if it's Bournemouth and Villa, as it mm. increasingly looks like with with the amount of financial turmoil that those two clubs will be in. Um, I'd quite fancy it as long as Norwich can do what they need to do now in the next two months to basically refresh and reinvigorate everything about the place to go again 
Yeah, because that's the thing. It is absolutely no guarantee. The championship is a real, real tough league. And you can say all those things that I have just said, but you know full well that when you go to Rotherham on a Tuesday night and when Wigan turn up in December, it's you get a hard game every week. You've got to be ready to battle. It's, it is quite different to the Premier League, isn't it? So you would you just got to hope that the lessons Daniel and, and most of that squad learned from last season and the season before will stand them in good stead. But... I've been a little bit whimsical there, Connor, and sort of dreamt about the future that could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, those Farker waves with people back in. Imagine that first game at Carrow Road with a full crowd again. They win. Farker celebrates in how we want to see it. That would be amazing. But things are getting pretty bad here. This They are not even going to equal the points that the Chris Hewton, essentially, team of 2014 went down on, which was 33, and the Nigel Worthington team of 2005 which was also 33 they have conceded 67 goals that's as many as the Alex Neal team did and they've got three games left to play um, It's they've already conceded four more than the 2014 relegation team and they need to concede another 10 to level the 77 of the 2005 team so as much as we all don't expect Daniel Farker to come under huge heavy pressure this has got this has gone off the rails now. You know, a 4-0 defeat to West Ham, that was way off base, yeah. way off the standard that is acceptable for fans. They have got to find some way in this fast three game, last three games, as far as I'm concerned, they've just got to go and park the bus. They've got to do whatever it takes to grind out a point or a clean sheet at some point just to stop the rot because it's, the mood is getting really dark. It is, yeah, it is, I agree. And and there's no debate in Daniel Farker's quality as a coach. You only have to reference last season and, and parts of this season, I think, to, to see that in terms of how he takes his tactical ideas and, and puts them out onto the pitch. But in terms of injecting confidence and um, the mentality maybe of the squad a little bit, I think that's going to be tested in, in the last three games. And they've got to prove themselves and they've also got to prove to him, I think, to an extent that they are willing to, to roll their sleeves up a little bit. We, we haven't seen that. I think that's probably the, the, what the fans will take from, from since Project Restart, essentially, is that, OK, the performances haven't been there, but it's actually the intangibles that haven't been there either, the, the leadership. and uh, I don't like using the term fight particularly, but I, I guess you could throw that into it again, particularly today, where, where they were very passive, I thought, in their, in their play. And I mean, the, the defensive structure is probably non-existent at this point to, to an extent. So there's... I think there are a lot of things that, that need to be turned around in, in, the, in the next three games and, and it is an element of pride now I think that, that they're playing for and, and those records you've listed off there, there's so many of those and um, obviously it's the is it the club record defeat isn't it if, if they lose at Chelsea is, is that what we said so that's uh, yeah, that would be yeah. eight consecutive defeats. So yeah. Exactly, yeah, which which again is another unwanted record and, and to then ask them to go and turn that around and again we, we talk about uh, almost the winning mentality they bought from the championship. This is now a team with a losing mentality to take that into a campaign where you're going to ask them to be title challengers without sort of a, a mass exodus. It's going to be incredibly difficult to reinstate that, particularly in young players who are so dependent on confidence in terms of their development. So it's 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 such a big task now. It's such a different task as well. We've heard Daniel Farker speak about Norwich being the underdog for pretty much prior to every game this season and. Um, it, there's a, there's an element of truth in that, uh, b- but when they come back down to the championship, they're not going to be that. They're not going to be the underdogs. There's going to be some expectation. He's he's not had that as a as Norris City's head coach. He's not had to live with expectation, particularly even in 
the year after um, his first season where they won the title. There wasn't the expectation that they had to go up. There was just a, a willingness for improvement. And now there is going to be an expectation that they finish as a minimum in the top six, I think, from, from supporters. And how they deal with that, how they contend with that is with what will probably be a young squad is, is going to be very interesting. Um, so there's that interesting dynamic to play with as well. But these last three games, for me, you're right, defensive solidity has to be key because they can't keep shipping the amount of goals that they have for, a, for this season generally, but but equally in this period. I mean, three goals to Southampton, four to West Ham. Um, it, it's two to Watford. It's it's in, it's incredibly poor. And um, again, to, to score one goal since the Premier League restart for me says it all, as, as Paddy said at the top, they, they can see too many and don't score enough. And that defensive structure and probably structure in, generally, in general, I would argue, is, is probably key to their next three games, particularly... When you've got to go to Stamford Bridge in the Etihad, which is a, a relegated side, isn't isn't going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. They probably won't want to do it, but it's all about performance and it's all about pride and it's all about trying to gain some positivity, some momentum that they can take into the summer. Because if not, it, it could be very long. And of course, you've got the elements of recruitment and stuff, which which will excite and and that new season bounce that that everyone will hope for. But it's going to be incredibly difficult to go into a new campaign with confidence if they don't show if they don't show a level of performance that is probably acceptable in in, in the next three games. So, it's it's going to be an interesting three games in the sense of who he picks. Again, there were parallels today in terms of it was the eleven today that that essentially got them up from the championship, wasn't it? So so again, there's probably a wider point to be made there about the recruitment of this season, perhaps not being deemed good enough when, when they have to resort to that so we shall see um, I, for me I'll I, I say what I, what I said last week in terms of Adam Eder it would be good to see him get three games where um, perhaps to, to help his development and we saw Josh Martin come on as well I think these these are players that need to be drip fed a, a little bit more of top flight football before a, a gruelling championship campaign where they might be relied upon a bit more yeah and of course th- that they've equaled the club record it's going to be difficult to avoid claiming it totally for themselves at Chelsea on Tuesday but Burnley at home and then Man City away there's every chance they end up making that 10 with the way things are going um, so there, there's a carrot on the end of the stick for them to, to really avoid because that I think that would be getting well of course it would be getting to embarrassing proportions by that point but Pad um, before, we did come into this game on the back of that same starting 11 um, we saw a goal at Watford which just felt surreal, didn't it? Norwich were in the lead for six minutes um, <laughs> at Watford in midweek. So the last since we last recorded the pod, we've ha- we have actually seen a Norwich City goal. Um, and and other than uh, you know they eventually lost to a bit of a wonder goal. You didn't have a coat and it was really cold and we had some pretty ropey fish and chips after the game. <laughs> ropey, it, yeah. it, it wasn't that bad compared to today, was it? I forgot. I tried to forget about Watford mainly because I spent two days in the not very good state with my stomach. <laughs> uh, Mr. Fright, I won't even reference who the, the is a fish and chip emporium on the way back from Rickeridge Road. Um, don't even know why we're going down that route, but uh, I digress. No, that that of. From Southampton, since we've got back, that was probably the, I think the best cohesive performance yeah. I think we've seen. Now, um, how much of that was pro- because Watford were very much under pressure themselves, and as much as West Ham needed a result today, they definitely needed a result because um, they were below the line, I think. And 
and maybe that inhibited their performance. And of course, under Nigel Pearson, they are quite a stodgy, I, I always think, um, functional side. Maybe that played into Norwich's hands a little bit. But yeah, that's why it was for me now going out of that game. And okay, they didn't get the result, but they did look a bit more. And again, maybe because some of the championship elements came back in, Steeperman and Vrancic, um, Hernandez as well. And and you felt reasonably bullish going into today's game. I thought West Ham, because they are a team under the pressure, because they've spent such a huge amount of money, they've got an experienced manager in David Moyes. Um, you thought with the pressure conversely off Norwich, because effectively they were already down, that that, that we could have seen far more than we saw today. That's why, I, for me, I bracket this this what we saw this afternoon with Man United, with Wolves away. I thought it was probably as poor as we've seen from Norwich um, because they couldn't say there was huge amounts of pressure on them because they were playing for their survival they were already down pretty much um, and yet to to be as sort of compliant as they were and as inhibited as they were and just completely lacking in any intensity to their play individually and collectively I, I found it a very strange and it reflects poorly on those players and it reflects poorly on Farker because what we've heard in Certainly, since Brighton was about a pride in the shirt and a, and a professionalism, and and we didn't see any of that today. So, you know, to go slightly back to the Farker debate, it, it doesn't reflect very well on him that he's not been able to extract a performance. And okay, you could have still lost the game, but there's a way, as we've, we've already discussed, there's a way you go down, there's a way you lose games in the Premier League, and that isn't it. What we saw today, and if I'm a Norwich fan, I'm very angry if I've seen that today because. That doesn't inspire me with any confidence that, given the majority of those players probably will still be around next season, that they've got enough about them now uh, and they can shed the obvious disappointment that it hasn't worked for them at this level. But I'll be slightly concerned if I'm brutally honest, because you know that wasn't by any stretch good enough today. Um, and and if, if that is the case, uh, what we saw today, there's no way on earth, there's no prospect that they're going to get to the end of the season and they're not. 10 defeats on the spin in the league and if that is the case then you know the credit that Farker has rightly built up will be evaporated for me and, and he'll be starting again from a very low base and, and the pressure will be on him and by definition his players From true crime to football Brexit to folklore For more great podcasts from Archant head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant Those, the first two goals as well, the aerial problems, the set pieces, you know, a corner and a free kick, pretty simple. Vrancic closes to Godfrey. None of them done anything particularly great there. Okay, first one's a decent finish from Antonio. Doesn't give Krull a lot of chance. But that that fallibility at set pieces has been a real problem, isn't it? And, and everybody keeps talking about the zonal marking now. That seems to have become the uh, sort of focus for a lot of people. Quite rightly, yeah, because it seems it's if it's not fully zonal, it's some sort of hybrid. But ultimately, they're not marking players, they're not marking space, they're not attacking the ball. You know, since the restart, Everton have scored a goal from a corner. Uh, Watford scored the other night, and now West Ham scored from a corner. And Antonio's free kick, what a closer is doing, I do not know. Um, so essentially, they've leaked th- four goals direct from set pieces since the restart. That's not even getting into. Because I, I remember putting this to Farker after they went to Southampton and Danny Ying scored at the near post um, 
and the second goal that night um, was from a corner as well. In fact, very similar to West Ham's first goal. I think there was a touch at the near post, and it, on that occasion it was Ryan Bertrand, I think, from memory, coming into the back stick. Um, so, you know, they're not learning. They're making the same errors, and again, reflects poorly on Farker, ref- reflects, reflects poorly on the players. But t- the reason I referenced Southampton is because Daniel said it wasn't that he was wedded to zonal, but there was some... Th- philosophical desire for him as a coach that he had to have his players set up in zonal he basically put it down to he didn't have enough physically imposing players to, to, to go man to man at this level and uh, they certainly need to find some for the championship because I, I've written about it today actually that they leaked goals from set pieces in the championship but yeah, it was camouflage because they scored barrow loads at the other end with Puki and Buendia and whoever so the deficiencies have been there not just this season defensively on set pieces but probably all through Farker's reign, and and unfortunately, if it's not eradicated, then you know you're putting a hell of a reliance on whether it's a Puki or Sonani or a another to sort of score the goals at this level. But ultimately, even if they do manage to do that and come back again, they're going to be exposed again uh, back at this level in the Premier League if they don't deal with what for me is quite a structural issue in his coaching setup. So, yeah, uh, obviously, what will happen is what what's happened every summer under Farker and Weber is they go let the dust settle and they'll go off. For two or three days, and they'll basically just have a full and frank forensic debrief about every aspect of what went right, what went wrong this season. Now, you would hope very high on the list is how do we eradicate this vulnerability from set pieces? Because um, you know it it's should it should it shouldn't be that easy to score goals. Whether it's the Premier League or the Championship, you should not be making it that easy for teams to score goals. Because if you do, then you're putting an awful reliance on your ability to score at the other end and. And I don't think Norwich can go into next season just assuming you score three, we'll score four. No, if they're going to get promoted back to this level, they've got to come back with a more solid defensive foundation because you. It, it, this has proved really that you can't step up to the Premier League and try and play that sort of um, you score three, we'll score four mentality in the Premier League. It isn't going to work. You're, you're, the step up in quality is so huge. But beyond that, Connor, the, the third and fourth goals both come from, or, or certainly contributed heavily to, by individual mistakes. Brancic loses the ball ahead of the third one, and to be fair, Krull's probably a little bit unlucky, yeah. isn't he, yeah. um, with how Antonio scores it. But And then Lucas Rupp, just minutes after he's coming on, I mean, it, it was like watching a year 11 pupil playing against a year 9 pupil in, at lunchtime. He just yeah. brushed him off and left him on the floor. It was... It, well, it's just not good enough. Yeah, I think Daniel Farker described it as men versus boys, isn't he, at times? That's, yeah, that's yeah. probably a, a fitting uh, fitting description of, of Norwich City's campaign. But yeah, a lot of it has been individual mistakes and we could probably sit here and, and list at least, well, double figures of individual mistakes made this season, to be fair. it's It's been a repeated theme and I guess that is probably a by-product of, of trying to keep the ball and, and trying to play out from the back to, to some extent. Um, but yeah, you're right, that... that there does need to be a level of pragmatism and, and you see it in and we spoke about this last week in terms of the teams that if you want to label it as established in the Premier League are Burnley uh, are probably the best example I, I guess Palace again who are built from the back and, and um, it, it's difficult really for, for me to think at a time where um, I can recall a, a Norwich City side perhaps with the exception of, of Nigel Worthington in the Championship uh, where, where they've been Defensively solid. Um, it's <laughs> it's not something that I I really recall um, to to be honest. So yeah, I even under Lambert, you wouldn't have no. said Elliot Ward and Barnett no. and things, would you? No, it's it's always been an emphasis on on the, uh, the on the attacking elements, which okay, it's been very successful. You, you look at the promotions and the goals, and 
what have you. But defensively, there's there's never been a solidity there from from my from my memory, and and that's certainly that's certainly something that needs to be rectified. And we can talk about zonal marking, but Antonio's second goal comes from from man to man. It's yeah. it's just closer not doing his job against Antonio, and and that's how they've scored. So it's set pieces generally, and. Um, it's for me a, a wide, wider issue in, into their defensive behaviours and, and how they how they play off the ball because I think structurally, um, defensively today it, it was it was really poor and they've been caught out um, simply by by teams waiting for them to make waiting for them to make that mistake waiting for them to concede possession and then they overload in transition and <laughs> and it seems like we go from Norwich losing the ball and ten seconds later they've conceded their goal and that's that's not really good enough and. Okay, in the championship you get let off on occasion, and I, I think that um, FA Cup game against Preston earlier this season sort of indicated that to some extent, where they did give the ball away on a few occasions, and Preston would have shots that went wide or went over the bar, or that final pass wouldn't quite be there. But with the quality in the Premier League, you, you have to be resolute, and that has to come from not just your your back four and your goalkeeper, but actually your midfield as well. And it was interesting in in listening to to Daniel Farker. Um, uh, post-match when, when he sort of spoke about Kenny McLean and, and his importance physically what he offers Norwich's midfield physically and, and defensively and it, it kind of feels like that's a concession that they've made this season in terms of their midfield makeup that they've had to resort to a more sort of double pivot I guess defensively um, to, to protect the back four to keep them in games and they haven't done that enough to be fair that kept themselves in the game and I think that's that's probably a lesson they've learned this season how crucial that first goal is and, and how much effort you have to put in to win a, a Premier League game and um, those individual mistakes it's difficult because it's not something that can be coached but it's, it's probably part probably in part to do with not having probably good enough players for their level and, and probably part as well down to the overall structure of the side and, and the balance of it and the defensive structure. So there are a lot of elements, I think, that need to be worked on. And this isn't a rebuild in the sense that they need to strip everything away and, and come again. It's, it's very much that there are certain elements that need to be rectified and, and improved drastically. And I think the defensive setup of that side for me, and we can talk about £50 million defenders, I, I certainly don't see any within that Norwich City side. Um, for me, it's, it's the wider... It's the wider network of it and, and how they set the team up defensively. And again, that can be probably aimed at Farker and his coaches, but but equally, I think the players as well and, and their um, execution of a game plan because it, it isn't at the moment good enough for the Premier League. And, and that's something that they'll need to rectify in the Championship because, of you, as you said, it is gruelling, it is a slog and they are going to go to grounds against very attritional sides that are going to look to, to out-muscle them and, and it's all going to be about how they stand up to that test. And on the evidence of, of this season and Antonio today I think is the perfect example it, they need to be a lot better individually and, and probably collectively as well OK well Adam Ida Ida did uh, sort of get the ball in the back of the net for a disallowed goal didn't he forced a, an own goal in off Aaron Cresswell after Campwell passed but was just offside but that was about as good as it got uh, let's just take a quick breather chaps and then we'll uh, sort of look forward a little bit but first uh, here is uh, a little uh, reminder of the other podcasts you can hear from Archant at the Halifax we understand that as life returns to normal it's a little bit different for everyone you might feel good being out and about again or maybe you still feel safer being at home perhaps it's even a good time to consider moving Right now, what matters is being wherever you feel most comfortable. And wherever that is, the Halifax are here to help. Online, on our app, over the phone or in branch. Terms, conditions and restrictions apply. 
Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Why would a police force seemingly ignore a wealth of evidence and intelligence that a major paedophile ring was operating on its patch? Why would the charity workers trying to save the child victims find themselves targeted by a campaign of smears and threats? And why would a notorious child molester facing life in prison be let off with a slap on the wrist? I'm Charles Thompson, and this series of Unfinished will reveal how I spent five years trying to find the answers to those questions, and in doing so, uncovered a scandal that went unreported for almost 30 years. Subscribe now to receive the first episodes as soon as they're released in early July. Right, well, I'm not sure if this is too much of a basic uh, thing to be thinking about, Pad, but do you think just physical size is something that Norwich have lacked in in the Premier League? It was a a question that stuck in my mind from the live updates during the game, and Norwich are quite a small side, and when you compare them to most of their Premier League rivals, they they do just seem to have that uh, disadvantage aerially, don't they? Absolutely, and that follows out of the point I was making when Daniel basically said that they didn't have enough of those type of players to, to go man to man um, and if that is the case then you know it's quite an, an admission that maybe, maybe the you know when they sat down and looked at the squad and whether it was the faith they shown in, in the lads who got them out of division or the ones they added I mean obviously they brought in you know immediately springs to mind is Ibrahim Amadou who did have that physicality but just for whatever reason uh, wasn't able to get a regular run going in the side but um you know, I looked at West Ham's midfield today and Declan Rice, I mean, he, he he just, I couldn't believe how big he was in terms of tall and powerful and, um, you know, you compare him with with Tete or, or Mario Vrancic, it's just totally different types of player and, and ultimately, you know, you look at the Premier League and and people sometimes get a, a bit seduced that it's all about this technical finesse and of course it is about that. But, you know, pound for pound, you look at a Premier League player and a Championship player and, and the athleticism, the power, and Antonio obviously will have typified that as well as anyone today, that, you know, it, there is a step up in terms of the physicality and, and the athleticism required between Championship and Premier League. It isn't just the silky skills of a David Silver or, or you know, um, whoever, Bruno Fernandes. So Norwich have been deficient in many areas as a, as a group of players and, and certainly for me, that is one of them, yeah. That physically they they're not able to, and the, and you saw the games, you know, at Car Road early in the season, the heavy defeats to Villa and Manchester United, gear changes. These teams were able to go through the gears just within games, and whether that was a John McGinn powering through a midfield or, or you know Marcus Rashford stretching the play, and and Norwich were clinging on for dear life in those games, and have been too often this season. They just physically don't seem to have the capacity to compete, and, and Farker might come back with. Stats about how many how many yards or kilometers they covered in games, but I don't remember too many games where you felt physically Norwich were able to compete with these sides if they were going to get any results 
it was really what they did with the ball and their ability to retain it and of course in the championship it's far easier for, for the, the type of player Norwich have in their squad to be able to dominate a game but um, you know for me that was a very naive approach that they felt they could go into this league and be better than the majority of teams with the ball that plainly they haven't been and, and as a result you know they are going to finish a long way short well, I'm sure we'll see that emphasised when Burnley roll up next weekend uh, with their team of giants. Uh, so that should be fun. <sighs> um, <laughs> transfers then. There's no avoiding it. Uh, the club may uh, be, you know, may have their line that they don't have to sell. But um, I think we all know that we'd all be incredibly surprised if at least one or two of the saleable assets weren't moved on this summer. Not, not just from the financial point of view, but I think. Because of the players, they they are, are going to have their own ambitions, aren't they? Um, the players who are most likely, you mentioned there, Godfrey not worth fifty million. I think we can take that fifty million with a pinch of salt, can't Absolutely. we? I mean, I, I don't think many players are going to go for fifty million uh, in the next couple of months with the way the world is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Let alone um, a young player in Ben Godfrey who, you know, again hasn't covered himself in glory as a centre back today. But who do you think is most likely in your opinion or no maybe it's probably fairer to say it, who who would you be letting go first, sort of first off the rank if 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 Norwich have got to sell someone first um I'll come to you come to you on this as well pad but who's the one you'd let go well that's a that's a really tough question um i i think probably for me in terms of um who i'd let go because i think Probably I can't. I can't envisage them playing a, another season in the championship. I probably look at two, and that's probably Max Aaron's and Emery Buendia. I think they're probably the two for me that I look at with probably genuine top flight ability. Um, I probably throw Todd in that as well, but I think it's it's probably um, the fact that he he didn't perhaps have the credit of a championship title winning season and playing consistently in that that probably um, draws him down a little bit. And I, and I think probably as a local lad, he might take it upon himself a little bit to. Um, to, to help or try and help the club get back to the top flight so, so that's my reason for not including him but yeah I think, I think those two um, particularly Emi Buendi I think with the numbers and the metrics and we can sit here and list them all I've, I think he's, he's probably done enough this season to warrant enough attention if not from the Premier League then certainly from a, a domestic um, top flight elsewhere uh, in, in, in maybe in Spain for example I, I think he's, he's probably a good shout and um, Max Aarons for me I think has I mean with any of these young players really you, you'll Paying for potential, aren't you? That's that's the nature of it because they they've all been involved in in a defence that we've just spoke about as as perhaps not being good enough, but they're, they're players with with a huge amount of potential. And I think for me, Max Aaron's probably um, has is one, and and um, I can't remember who the coach was. Maybe you could point it out to me. But there was a, a coach um, who who spoke about him and said essentially that he takes everything in his stride, and no matter what level he's at, and and it's kind of been a bit like that again this season. I don't think he's. He's stood out necessarily in terms of being man of the match, but I think in terms of his consistency for his age at this level, I think he's he's been very good um, actually. So so I think probably Max Aaron's is is probably the one that I can see um, having another season in the Premier League. Probably not with Norwich City. I guess that was probably Matt Gill would it, when, when he sort of was, yeah, was you, you coming right. through, or oh, maybe David right. Wright. I suppose the Youth Cup days, something like, something along those lines. But yeah, I, I see Max and Emmy as the two to be most in demand. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not really believing the hype with Godfrey, to be honest. I don't. I don't. I'm not convinced that people are going to be banging down the door for him. I'm certainly not that convinced that his agents have managed to materialise interest from Borussia Dortmund. 
I'm I'm interested with Ben though because I I feel like it's become all that transfer stuff around him has almost become a bit of a negative, and it shouldn't really. It shouldn't really have any um, bearing on it. And he he's right to be ambitious. Uh, you know, they all are right to be ambitious. You have to be in any walk of life, and particularly as a footballer. But there's still a big part of me, and it, it seems to have come back a lot at the moment. People talking about you know, well, can't can't they put him in midfield again? I mean, this season, Farker's not really had a choice. He's had to play Godfrey at centre-back because of the injury. So this season, it's not really um, that much of a discussion point, I don't think. But for me, I I just wonder whether all, all this talk about Teddy's successor, whether they've got Teddy's successor, he's been there the whole time, and they're just not using him. Because I think he has more ambition than to be a defender. He likes to push forward in midfield. He likes to have a shot at goal. I just... I'd love to see it in the championship, uh, you know, build the team around him, let Teddy mentor him, but that means basically buying a whole new defence, doesn't it? Um, unless Hanley, Zimmerman and Close are all fit properly for the start of next season. Yeah, but those elements you, you said there as well probably lead me to, to suggest why they've sort of put him in centre-back a little bit as well. I, I think they're probably qualities that, that those big sides look for, a, a defender who can step out, who is competent on the ball. And I think that there maybe it was a debate, I think, after that Shrewsbury season where... He played alongside John Nolan, didn't he? He was at Ipswich and he was very much the sort of deep line one. Whether perhaps they had some concerns about maybe his technical ability and maybe that's why they dropped him back because it's better, I think, to be a, a very good technical centre-back than, than perhaps an average technical defensive midfielder. So maybe that was their thinking, I don't know. But um, his pace as well, I think, is, is probably a, a factor as well. It's probably an attribute that is desirable for, for big clubs in their defenders. I think physically he's, he's obviously very good as well. I think there's still so much potential for him to grow into. Um, but yeah, I, I think increasingly the more I look at him the more I see a, a central defender and that's obviously the position he's played in, in the last two years so I think that's natural but yeah I think you're right there's always going to be that what if he, he was a defensive midfielder what if he did push into that position but and more than that what if he wants to be a defensive exactly. midfielder yeah. that's what has always been in the back of my mind is that really he doesn't want to be a centre back mm. because he doesn't seem to have that natural um, smell for the danger and it would be incredibly gutting for Norwich to if to see him go off somewhere and his agents have said he's a midfielder really and he goes into another Premier League team and then gets in the England squad as a midfielder which I think is is a possibility mm. um, who knows we, the, the one thing with Godfrey is if he's still here next season Norwich fans are going to be pretty happy with that because whether that's centre-back or midfield he is definitely capable of playing at a high level in the Championship he just hasn't managed to step up to Premier League level consistently yet We nobody's Doubting the physical attributes and 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 his personality and all that sort of stuff. There's a, there is the raw ingredients for a real good football player there, but he's still not not the finished product yet. So I hope I hope the whole transfer thing doesn't become a bit of a cloud over him and his reputation with the club and stuff. But that's clearly one that we're going to be keeping a close eye on. Um, Pad, the, the, the same question to you then. Who, who do you sort of see as the first one off the rank? Yeah, well, I concur with both Max Aaron's for two reasons. One. I think he will command the biggest fee uh, because of his age, his profile, um, his nationality as well. So that that's if you're Weber, that that's an easier one to offload him um, and get him getting a very sizable fee. And the second reason, because subject to him coming through his fitness issues, Sam Barham's a ready-made replacement. They don't even have to go out and recruit another right back. They've got one. They'd obviously have to bring in a cover for Byron, but I think we saw enough from Sam Byron that played in his and that is his natural position. I know he was doing a job on the left hand side, but 
I think he, in the certainly in the championship he would be more than adequate. Um, so you get a rather sizable figure, and as Farkas alluded to, they they need to still retain a group that are good enough to have a proper attempt at coming straight back. Then there you go. That you've banked many millions and you've got a very adequate replacement. So for me, it's yeah. For me, it's Aaron's and I. I just one footnote on Godfrey and broaden that out to any of those younger players. Weber was spot on the other day when he said don't if you're those players and the ones advising those players don't go and jump into a club I mean like you said some of the fanciful clubs linked to Ben Godfrey um, in recent times don't go to any of those type of clubs because you're not going to play regularly is that good for your development at this stage as a a young professional footballer to go to a club where you know you're on the bench you play the odd game and then 6-12 months down the line you're out on loan somewhere you know as Weber again used James Madison was the prime example. He went when it was right for him and he was right for the, the football club and he went into a team who were on the up and he's playing regularly. And look at him now, he's getting linked with bigger moves to the Uniteds of this world and he's an England regular. So, um, you know, they need to be very well advised, those young men, over this summer and, and not pushed down into an avenue which is going to be detrimental to their mid to longer term career prospects. Unfortunately, I, I get the vibe that they haven't been particularly well advised so far this season because all, all this transfer stuff, it comes from somewhere. It comes from agents most of the time. That's how it ends up in the sun hours after Norwich are beaten by Brighton. That's how so many of these rumours, you know, it's not in Norwich's interest to be constantly circulating their names to the Nationals and linking them with all the big clubs. Um, or you can just go totally the other way and be the Daily Star and say that Sheffield United are going to sign Todd Campbell for ten million, as we saw this week, and just couldn't resist taking the piss out of because it was so ridiculous. But I mean, Sheffield United as a club, if they were able to stump up the money for Todd, which they are, they've got some backing behind them. That wouldn't be the worst to take on what you're saying there, Pad. Yeah. That is the sort of level of club where Todd probably could stay in the Premier League and probably could get regular game time, and he might just be able to offer something that Sheffield United don't really have that little bit of attacking dynamism but um, we're going to talk a lot about transfers in in the next few months but just to sort of bring the pod to a close really because there's so much to talk about at the moment isn't there it's I said on Twitter the other day that I feel like I could write a book just based on the season there's there's so much happened isn't there but Norwich are going to be keen to to change the conversation now aren't they they're going to want to move this on and you know the internet is so prevalent in football nowadays, isn't it? That even when Norwich are fishing in different markets like Denmark or Luxembourg, we hear about it, don't we? All these things come out, or Romania, as we certainly <laughs> heard this week from a quite controversial source. But it looks like there's quite a few, uh, you know, wheels in motion already in the background, aren't there? Yeah, I think it's safe to say, um, as we saw, anybody saw the pictures earlier this week that. Your likes of McCallum, City, and Senani, back at Colney, um, already integrating themselves, and and that was the first wave, if you like, I guess, of the the 2021 uh, what Norwich City looks like, and I think that the next wave will be pretty pretty swiftly happening because um, setting aside the soap opera around uh, your man Dennis Mann at uh, Stauer, which I don't think is going to come off if they're talking <laughs> that far apart in terms of valuations, so. Um, I think there will be movement. We know there will be movement. Um, the Danish lad, it's widely reported now in in Holland. Uh, sorry, in uh, Denmark. Um, might be widely reported in Holland as well. <laughs> Sorensen, um, forgive me, I'll forget his first name, but a uh, 22-year-old defensive midfielder. Um, 
he will be joining Norwich and he will be the first of three or four lads in the next sort of week, ten days. Um, not all pointed at the first team. You know, they, clearly there is a dimension about development and there will be development squad additions, but they're very keen, to take your point, DF, um, to draw a line under this season now and, and pivot towards, we understand we've made mistakes, we're, we're trying to learn our lessons and this is the start of, by no means the end of, I think they're going to be fairly active this window I get the impression um, of refreshing the squad with a view to drawing a line under what's gone before and then looking forward to the new season and what better way to almost reinvigorate your fan base to see some new young hungry looking highly rated in some cases uh, talent coming through the doors because it needs it needs to be freshened up because too many times that Norwich teams in the past have gone down and there's been too much loyalty shown to the group who went down um, and it's never quite worked. You, you, they will need to be shaking things up, and I think under Weber's watch, certainly, he will be well aware of that. By his own admission, Connor touched on it earlier. He didn't do his job properly last summer in the recruitment stakes. He did, you could argue, quite rightly, the summer before or the winter before, bringing in lots of Puki and Buendia, who were staples in the championship title-winning team. He needs to go again. He needs to prove that him and his recruitment team have got some gems, and, and whether the three have come in the door already are going to be the gems or whether there's the lads who are going to come in shortly time will tell but um, but I think there's no doubt about it within a very short period of time Norwich's squad will start to look quite a different complexion to the one it is now yeah harsh lessons learned for Stuart and the recruitment team you know it shows the the step up in quality that's required but we all probably want to draw a line under the season but we've still got these three games to go uh, the pubs are open again, so maybe Norwich fans need to come up with a, with a drinking game or something to keep them entertained during these uh, <laughs> during these last three. But it has just come to me, Connor, that earlier in the season, which seems uh, ages ago now, at one point you were going to have your first beer if Norwich survived, weren't you? So, <laughs> yes. so you've you've escaped from that one. Yeah, I have. Yeah, um, I completely forgot about that. To be honest, <laughs> when uh, was that? That was after Newcastle, wasn't it? When we saw um, Andy Carroll in the uh, possibly. I think it might restaurant. be. You know, I feel like we were coming back from. A game in London yeah. might have been Brighton maybe it was after Brighton yeah. well you said that you'd never had a drink and I was like right yeah. well you have to have your, or, or have you never had a beer or whichever it was yeah. um, I was like right well if they stay up <laughs> you've got to have a beer I'll survive that one at least so yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, that'll be a soft lemonade for me alright we'll move it on then if Norwich win the title next year <laughs> <laughs> then you can have your first beer champagne yeah, you have a whole bottle yeah, okay, okay yeah I'll sign up for that yeah okay <laughs> deal good stuff right well that starts the post-mortem I think um, because there's plenty more stages to go through and there's there's going to be so much to talk about Um, in this strange situation that's kind of the the thing that can't be forgotten really that you know we're talking about football in kind of normal circumstances aren't we but still behind closed doors still the the strangeness of all that and we're going to have a very quick turnaround between the seasons we don't really know what pre-season is going to look like we don't know what sort of fitness regimes the players are going to be going through from here on in. It's going to be fascinating, worrying, exciting. It's going to be a whole mixture of emotions. But um, the next three, you might just want to uh, batten down the hatches and, uh, and find a way to get through it before we get on to the more interesting stuff. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as ever, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, then please do. And any ratings or reviews, always very much appreciated. And if you want to get in contact with us, we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You know where to find us. And we will 
We'll be at Chelsea on Tuesday night, so of course, Pinkham.com is the place to go if you want to. Just it's good, good second screen material. Our live updates. If you want, obviously, all the games are on TV at the moment. But um, if you want to get that little bit of analysis and all the access to the updates and, and the reaction, then that's a good place to uh, to be on a match day. So we will uh, we will be there Tuesday night at Chelsea. But thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch up with you very soon. 